How are we doing? The rain is falling again, yeah? Well, uh, our, our new pastor arrived today. We'll be introducing him and kind of formally installing him um, as a pastor on Sunday. So make sure you join us Sunday morning for that to get to meet Brent and his family. But he literally pulled into downtown today in his rider truck and I was just kind of laughing. Like it hasn't rained in two months. And then you come in with your rider truck ready to start unpacking and there's the rain. It's like when you wash your car, right? You know it's going to rain. Hey, uh, turn to Mark chapter 7, would you guys? It's good to be back here with you. I was, uh, Sam shared with us last week, which he does um, periodic or regularly, but um, um, last week I was preparing and getting ready for family camp, which we did uh, over the weekend. It was awesome. Um, but I, it just occurred to me uh, last night, I guess it was, that we don't really, or at least I, on my, my end of, or my area of responsibility, I don't have any big events on the calendar for the near foreseeable future with, uh, um, where did we go? Israel behind us and family camp and all that stuff. And so I now have a nice long season of just routine, if that makes sense. Um, I shouldn't say that, right? We don't have wood, but that just means something will come up. But um, it's nice to be back with you guys here tonight, and I'm looking forward to being with you this weekend. Hey, we're going to be in Mark chapter 7, and we're going to start in verse 24, and we're going to finish the chapter. But as you're turning there, let me read to you. Perhaps you'll remember this. This is from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Aren't you thankful for the gospel of Jesus Christ that has washed us, that has cleansed us, that when we read those lists in the scriptures, when we become aware of our failings, of our shortcomings, that we can rely on the truth that we have been washed, that we're different? Aren't you thankful for the gospel? Now, I have a question for you. Here on Wednesday nights, you know, our approach to things is a little bit different than it is on the weekends. Um, on the weekends right now, we're going through 2 Corinthians, but on Wednesday night, we're going through Mark currently, but we're going through it with a specific emphasis. This is a discipleship study. Um, if you see the logo on our website and whatnot, and we would maybe usually have up here from time to time, though this is up here differently for a very cool reason, but um, it, it would say Mark, and then underneath it, it says, as we behold him, we become like him. It's from a passage in 2 Corinthians that we'll get to soon enough. And the idea is, is that we are looking at the life of Jesus Christ in the book of Mark, understanding that as disciples of Jesus Christ, we are called to follow Jesus Christ, to do what he did, to live as he lived, to understand what he taught, to be his disciples. A disciple in Jesus' day was one who followed the rabbi so that he could learn to do what the rabbi did. And so we're taking this approach in the book of Mark to understand the things Jesus did and the things Jesus teaches from the standpoint of we want to do them. We want to go and perform ministry like Jesus did. That's the idea. So 
here on Wednesday nights, we first of all are teaching from the understanding, though it may not be true of everyone in this room, statistically speaking, it's probably not, but we teach from the understanding or, or from the foundation, if you will, or the understanding that everyone in the room here, we are all followers of Jesus Christ. We have already been cleansed by the gospel. This is not, they don't tend to be evangelistic messages here on Wednesday night. We don't do a lot of altar calls or any of that because we're just approaching it from that angle, but hopefully teaching in such a way that if you're here, you're an unbeliever, you're, you're, you're new to all these things, you're going to learn and grow with these things as well for sure. But the other thing is, is that we're teaching these from the angle that we are going to do them. We're going to serve. We're going to follow Jesus in this way. So I say, okay, the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have been washed. And this is, we're, we're, we're all believers in this gospel. We've all been changed by this gospel, right? Amen? Okay. But if I asked you one-on-one right in front of you, hey, explain to me the gospel. Tell me the gospel of Jesus Christ. What would your answer be? Because I have found it's shockingly, it's just surprising how many people who may have been in church for years and years and years, grown up in the church, that we, we don't have a real clear go-to answer for that question, which might be the most important question you could ever be asked. What is the gospel? The gospel's changed me. That's amazing. What is this gospel you speak of? A lot of people will say things like, uh, it's that Jesus died for our sins. Is that the gospel? Yeah, it's a pretty important part of it. That's part of the gospel. But is it the gospel? If you were called to share the gospel in its entirety to someone, what would your answer be? Well, we're going to see it from this text. It's really interesting. I was actually talking uh, to our guys in the sound booth today, and one of them actually found this logo right here just on the software that we use for our slides. And so when I walked in, it was up, just randomly like, ah, I just needed something to put up on the screen. I saw this and went, that, he actually said, it looked churchy, so I put that up. (laughs) But here's what's amazing. When I walked in and I saw that, I was like, that's my message. That is a visual message representation of the gospel that we're going to see in this text. So the Holy Spirit was moving in here, right? So let's take a look. We're going to look at this text. It's a um, almost awkward text. It's one that I'll be honest with you, I've never really liked because it seems like Jesus is just being mean. It seems like he's just holding out on someone. It's like, why are you doing that? And, and maybe for some of us, it actually could feel a little bit more like, oh, our relationship with God might feel at times, like he's holding out on us or something like that. It seems like that's what's going on. But there's something much bigger at play in this particular story. So we're in Mark chapter 7. And it starts in verse 24, and it says, And from there he arose, and he went away, to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. Now, the area here of Tyre and Sidon, this place that Jesus is going to, it's on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, north of Israel. It's in areas that are dominated today by Arab nations. It's not under current Israel control, Tyre and Sidon. Um, but it's, it's a uh, very important cities, and at that time, very influenced by either Greek culture or really just kind of paganistic influences. But Tyre and Sidon in particular, if you'd said to the Jewish people at this day, hey, Jesus Jesus Christ just went to Tyre and Sidon. Their response would have been one of like gasps of horror, like shock. Why? Why in the world would Jesus Christ go to Tyre and Sidon? 
See, the, the, the history between Israel and Tyre and Sidon in that Phoenician area right there um, is a very, very sketchy one. First of all, Tyre and Sidon is known for pervasive uh, pagan idolatrous worship. And, and not just at this time, but throughout history. You guys know who Jezebel is? Jezebel is the woman who was taken as queen by Ahab, and she brought with her worship of the god Baal into the northern kingdom. And there in the northern kingdom of Israel, this worship of Baal became pervasive. It spread throughout the land. It it nearly isolated all of the people of God from any resemblance of worship of the actual God, Yahweh, at all. It wasn't until guys like Elijah were raised up by God to come in. You remember the story up on the mountain, 450 prophets of Baal called down fire. Elijah whipped out a sword, went Rambo on them and just tore them all down. Remember all that? I mean, these are the things that God went to because he was combating a massive influence of horrific pagan worship in the area. Well, Jezebel is from Tyre. This is where she's from. This is her homeland. This is what they did. And these kind of pagan influences were very clear. In fact, the Jewish people at the time of Jesus believed, it, was the, it wasn't so much a belief, it was just an understanding, a knowledge, that going to Tyre, you would there be faced with the most explicit, um, the most pervasive examples of pagan worship that you could come in contact with anywhere else on the planet. So when they go to Tyre, they know there's going to be altars and there's going to be pagan worship. It's going to be a pretty horrific place. Okay, so they have that that's, all, that's, that's kind of against them in this history of Israel here between Jews and Tyre and Sidon. Also, Tyre and Sidon had also been a political and military enemy of Israel. Um, in the in-between period of the Bible, between the Old Testament and the New Testament, that's where the Maccabean revolt took place. The Jewish people revolted against the Greeks. And, and in that war, the people of Tyre and Sidon fought against the Jewish people. And so they developed horrible um, reputations. They were hated amongst the Jewish people. In fact, the Jewish historian Josephus called the people of Tyre and Sidon, the Phoenician people there, Syrophoenician, I should say, um, Josephus called them notoriously our bitterest enemies. That's a huge statement because Israel's got a lot of them, right, historically. But that's who he referred to as their bitterest enemies. and, and I have to just say this, it's good for us to sometimes just be honest with the scriptures and admit things that are maybe hard to understand or hard to realize. In, in this area, when I think about some of these kind of things, like here's Jesus, the Messiah, and he's there with the Jewish leaders in the first part of Mark chapter 7, and now he's going to Tyre and Sidon. You can understand why some people in Israel would have a really hard time believing that Jesus was the Messiah, or at least would be confused by it. Because their understanding was they were waiting on a political Messiah. They were waiting on a king that was going to come back, overthrow the, Rome, overthrow the Romans, expel the Gentiles, and defeat Israel's enemies. Not go visit Israel's enemies and hug them. So when they would see these things that Jesus does, there's so many times for those people that they would just have to sit there and scratch their heads It's understandable why the apostles at times, even John the Baptist, who Jesus says is the greatest man who ever lived, at times was going, so are you him or should we wait for another? Because Jesus does a lot of things that are very uncharacteristic with the expectations of the day. And this is one of them. He goes to Tyre and Sidon. So why did he go to Tyre and Sidon? A lot of people speculate, come up with a lot of different missiological reasons, all these things. But really the, the, the bottom line is the easiest explanation, he was tired. 
He, w- he wanted a break. I mean, Jesus has been going through and ministering, and as we've seen in the book of Mark, there have been crowds pressing on him everywhere. Massive demand because word of all these miracles is spreading all over the place, and he is just tired of, there's all these people pushing on him all the time. He sends the apostles away because they need a break after the death of John the Baptist. And what happens? The crowd's running along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and that leads to the feeding of the 5,000. I mean, there's just constant pressure and people grabbing, and as we saw earlier in the chapter, even violently clinging and grabbing to Jesus. And then he has this showdown in chapter 7, this confrontation with the religious leaders. It was over, you guys remember we looked at it a couple of weeks ago, it was over the fact that, the Jew, that, that Jesus' disciples weren't following the Jewish customs of washing their hands in the proper way. And so these guys, they come against Jesus and they said, why aren't your followers following the tradition? And Jesus has this sort of confrontation with them where he's like, look, everyone gather around. He says in verse 14, he calls the people around him and says, hear me, understand. And you can almost imagine almost a sense of exasperation or just like, okay, listen. And Jesus is just plain tired. It says that he's going up here. This is where you see some of the humanity of Jesus Christ, that he's going up here and he doesn't want anyone to know that he's there. He's kind of keeping it secret, doesn't want anyone to know that he's there, but yet he could not be hidden. And so what we do need to understand, though, is that there is a contrast between what we're about to learn and what we saw in the first part of chapter 7, though. See, the, the connection is Jesus runs because he's looking for a break. And it runs is a bad word. He's not running away, but he's, he's taking a vacation. He's getting away where he can sit with his disciples and teach without all of these guys coming in and challenging them all the time. This is the context in what he's doing right here. And it comes right on the heels of this conflict between the religious people who, remember, anyone in that day, if you would have said, who's the most Israelite Israelite of all the Israelites? Who is the one that God would be most proud of? Who's the one that God would say, that's my child, the people of Israel? They would have all pointed to the Pharisees, the scribes, the religious leaders of the day. Those are the guys that have it down. Now we have the benefit of you know, looking back in history and seeing how off they were, but remember, no one realized this. This was common, right? So here you have a conflict between those who people thought this is the most Israelite Israelite ever. These are the religious leaders. They follow all the Israelite customs. They follow all the Mosaic law. These are the Israelite people. And Jesus shuns them. He goes to a place called Tyre and Sidon, which is known for being pagan. And it is definitely a Gentile territory. And there we are introduced to a true Israelite. Not nationality Israelite, but a true God's children Israelite. This is the contrast that is intentionally put here in this chapter. So Jesus is going, that's the lens we're supposed to look through. Jesus goes to Tyre, he's going to take a little break, but he can't, words out there, verse 25, and immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. The woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, And she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. So, if you guys remember, earlier in the book of Mark, we had a story of another parent of a dangerously ill child who came and fell before Jesus, begging that Jesus would heal his child. He was a guy named Jairus. You guys remember that story? Jairus was the ruler of the synagogue. 
He was in the religious elite. He was one of those kinds of guys. Now we have, speaking again of contrast, the polar opposite of this. I mean, like you can't get more polar opposite than this. The first parent, a Jew of Jews, religious observer, in charge, a man of authority in the Jewish religion system. This person, well, verse 26 reads as if it's an indictment against this woman. It's as if it's a list of reasons that Jesus should have nothing to do with her. Look at what it says. In verse 26, it says, this woman was, number one, a woman. She was a woman. Now, don't, don't just blow by that like that's no big deal. You just didn't do that in that day. A Jewish man would not have those kinds of interactions with just a woman. It was somewhat scandalous. Even Jesus' interactions with the woman at the well and those things, that just didn't happen. So, first of all, she's a woman. Next, she's a Gentile. So, she's not a Jewish person. She is not a Jewish convert, nor nationally is she Jewish. So, she's not one of the children of God. She's Gentile. She's looked down upon as pagans, as dogs, but we'll get to that in a minute. Number three, she's Syrophoenician. So she's not just a Gentile, but she's from this area that is known for its worship of false idols and paganism. And and we can see that that's had some influence because the last thing is she has a daughter that is possessed by a demonic spirit. Most likely because of this, the fact that her household, even her children, have been opened up to occultic practices everywhere. In fact, in Matthew's account of this same story, it refers to her specifically and makes a point of noting that she was Canaanite. And the Canaanites are famous for their pagan worship and for the idolatry that they participated in. So, just, free side note, I won't chase this rabbit trail long. Be careful. You know, I mean, demonic possession is real. Demonic oppression is real. You go, well, okay, Jeff, come on. We don't see this kind of stuff every day. I don't know that we don't. I don't know that we don't. For, for one thing, I'll say this. If you go into third world nations, it's incredibly common. There are places I've been to in Africa, for example, where it's like you can just feel the darkness that's around you. And you can talk to people, and I'm talking not ignorant tribal people who are making up stories. I'm talking educated, learned, and mature godly people who have had the kinds of experiences out there on, to some degree, the front lines of hardcore spiritual warfare, the kind that we don't tend to see so much here. And they have stories that are, they're, they're supernatural to us, but completely natural to their existence in those other places. I, I see Eric Melgren over here nodding his head. Eric is constantly in and out of Africa, Asia, China on mission trips, short term, and then back, and then another one, and then back. He could tell you the exact same thing. Um, it, it absolutely is real. But you can say, well, we don't see as much of that today. Well, for one thing, I think we tend to associate demonic possession with what we see in movies. So you're right. We don't see a lot of kids whose heads spin around, spray vomit everywhere, climb the walls, all that kind of, we don't, we don't see, a lot, I don't see a lot of that. I don't know what circles you run in, but um, we don't see a lot of that, right? But what about addiction? What about, I mean, drug addiction, for example, if not possession in some cases is absolutely demonic affliction and oppression big time. I mean, even in the book of Revelation, the word that speaks is pharmakia is a word that's not only used with regards to drug addiction and to, to psychedelic drugs and those kind of things, but it also is referred to as demonic spirits. It's the same world, same language neighborhood, if you will. 
You ever talk to people that have been like hardcore in the throes of major drug addiction and then have been rescued by Jesus Christ? I could introduce you to some if you'd like to, and they will tell you stories of straight up demonic stuff that they see go down. But sometimes I also wonder if maybe we don't see it because some of the demonic, again, if not, if not uh, uh, possession, definitely oppression, just gets really normalized so that it doesn't have to stand out for us. I think of things like complete dependence and, uh, on uh, materialism and things like that where, where this becomes your God, not Jesus. And this becomes what controls your entire life, not Jesus. So you'll live for money and you'll live for wealth and you'll live for all these sorts of things and that'll be your God, not Jesus. But somehow we don't look at that as being demonic. I think it kind of is. I think it kind of is. But it becomes really hidden in our culture today. And there's a line from a famous movie that I probably shouldn't quote, but I'm going to anyway, where he says, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was making people think he didn't or doesn't exist. And, and I'll just tell you, those of you that go, well, I'm a Christian, but you know what? Some of that new agey, mystical, whatever stuff, creepy meditation things, all that kind of stuff. Some of that stuff, that's fine. I'm a Christian. I know the difference, but I'm just going to do that stuff because it's peaceful or it's interesting or my friends do it. I just say, be careful what you open yourself up to. And, and don't, don't play that that stuff's not real. I mean, here we have a woman, part of a culture that is obsessed with pagan worship, and now her child is completely possessed by a demonic spirit. I just, just be careful. I said I wasn't going to chase that rabbit trail far. I at least went out of sight, but I'll return. So here's this woman. She's got all these strikes against her. She's got, she's a woman. She's from Tyre and Sidon. She's pagan. She, she's a Gentile. She's got this demon-possessed person. She has all these things going against her, but one thing she has going for her in this particular story that is huge and awesome is that she has massive, gigantic, desperate need. Massive, gigantic, desperate need. That's what she has going for her. In the scriptures, Jesus in the Beatitudes, a famous teaching about the kingdom of God, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus sits down and he teaches about the Beatitudes, these characteristics of the kingdom, of the people of God, all of these sorts of things. And the first thing he teaches, the first Beatitude that Jesus teaches, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. The first thing he says, and that, that means literally spiritually bankrupt. Blessed are the people who have nothing spiritually. They are bankrupt. They are in desperate need for theirs is the kingdom of God. That, I, you got to be in a place of need. It's one of the reasons I believe that Jesus preaches against riches and says that it's easier for um, a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When people don't have need, they don't have need and they become not really aware of what they don't have in so many ways. Does that make sense? I said that in weird words, I know, but these, this woman has dramatic need and that, that very thing, in spite of all the things she has going against her, it's that desperate need that puts her in prime position to be saved by Jesus Christ. It's a good place to be. It's a good place. When you're in a place that you become aware of need, your failures, your sins, your shortcomings, whatever they might be, that's a good place to be. Don't run from God when he points things out. 
Because it's, it's, he's calling you to that place of awareness so that he can work. And that's where this woman is. And so this woman is begging Jesus to cast out her, 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 this demon out of her child. Now, in light of this particular passage, we've just learned in Matthew 7, when Jesus went through all the cleansing rituals and everything, in Matthew 7, verse 15, he said, there is no, I'm sorry, not Matthew, I'm sorry, Mark 7, 15, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Verse 18, and then you are, are you without with understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside can't defile him since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled? And then what does it say? Thus he declared all foods clean. So, so we just found that all of these unclean foods in the Jewish legal and Mosaic uh, law, in that whole system, Jesus has declared clean. So now we have a story with a woman what about a woman? What about an idolater? What about a person? Can that person be declared clean? Well, she begs Jesus in verse 27, and here's how he responds to her. Let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Okay, this verse will not get you super far um, if you quote it when you are sharing the gospel with people on the streets. Let me just say that right now, okay? If people are like, tell me about the gospel and you go, well, it's not really right for me to give you the children's food and uh, throwing it to the dogs, I can't really do that. That probably won't get you far. This is easily one of the more offensive statements that Jesus actually ever makes in the scriptures. And, and to understand why it's so offensive, other than, oh, he called her a dog and she's a woman and we don't want to do that. Hey, you need to understand more specifically the understanding culturally about dogs in this time. Dogs were considered animals that were completely, speaking of clean and unclean, very unclean. Um, they eat from trash. They were considered carry-ons. They eat dead animals. I mean, today, to this day, we go to the pet store and when we're buying something for our dog to play with, we get them what? Bones. And that's not okay in the Jewish system. And not to mention the licking. So these dogs are considered ceremonially unclean, right? So that, that's, that's one thing for sure going against them. But you got to understand, they became the phrase dog. And don't, don't misunderstand me. Dogs, it's God spelled backwards. God loves them. And, um, and, and there is a different term for that that we'll get to in a minute about a, a household pet. So people did have household pets that were dogs and all that kind of stuff. When, usually when the people are talking about dogs in the derogatory sense, they're talking more about street dogs or maybe what we would consider a stray or maybe words like mongrel, you know, things like that, okay? Um, and that phrase, dog, throughout the Old Testament becomes a phrase that is used to speak about someone who is completely worthless, that's how it's used. It's used that way in 1 Samuel 24, 2 Samuel 16, Isaiah 56, in many places. Um, Jesus himself warns against entrusting something that is sacred to a dog. Um, Paul in Philippians 2, 3 will refer to his opponents as dogs. And rabbinic tradition in rabbinical teaching said this, quote, that dogs were despicable, insolent, miserable creatures. And then went further on to say that dogs in that sense are considered to be those who are, quote, ignorant, godless, Gentile, pagan idolaters. That's a dog. That's a, that is not a compliment. That is not cute puppy. That is, you're a dirty dog. Gentile, worthless, pagan, nothing. 
And this is, Jesus is saying, well, it wouldn't be, be right for me to give bread away from the family and give it to the, this is what he says to her, to the dogs. Hmm. Well, does Jesus consider her to be that? Is that what he's trying to say? Well, there's three things to consider. The first one is, is that in all fairness, the word that Jesus uses for dog here could be translated towards mongrel. It also could be translated towards house pet. It's a more generic term for that. So he's not using the really harsh, insulted dog to her. He's not, he's not using that word. But you need to understand, maybe the point for her is self-awareness. We've seen him do this. John chapter 4, Jesus is with the woman on the well. And he talks to her, go get your husband. But he did it on purpose, right? Because he was getting her to confess her identity, to understand who she is, to become aware of her need for forgiveness. And so now here we have Jesus with an interaction with this, this pagan woman. And, and maybe he's getting her, bringing her to a place of self-awareness so that she understands exactly how bad she needs him. The third point in this is to understand again, Mark's writing this intentionally, led by the Spirit, purposefully writing this to show dramatic contest between, or contrast between the religious elite and a woman who could not be further from that. Like polar opposites here. So I think the word's used intentionally. I think Jesus is, is showing us here that this woman is on the far end of the spectrum. Anyone in that culture, if you would have said, who are the people of God? Who are the family of God? Who are God's kids? To use Jesus' parable here that he's speaking to her, they would not have looked to her. She would be last on the list. In fact, it is believed, many, many people teach, this woman is as far from the grace and mercy of Jesus, or, or at least from, from practical ministry, from a worshiping or from a, a, a practicing rabbi at that time as anyone else in all of the Gospels. In other words, this would be considered the most despicable person Jesus will interact with in the entire book of Mark. That's saying something. She's the bottom rung. And I think the contrast is intentional within this chapter. And so Jesus says this to her. He says, let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But though she may be considered on the far end of that spectrum, here's where she far surpasses the religious elite of this day. She gets it. She gets it. Check this out. She answers, yes, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. But yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Now, this is amazing. This woman is a Gentile pagan idolater. And listen, she's the first person in the entire gospel of Mark that actually understands Jesus's parable when he speaks it. No one else does. He has to pull other people aside and explain and go on all this stuff. He says one sentence to this Gentile pagan woman and boom, she gets it. People want to argue, how did she get it? How could she understand just from this one sentence? How could she get this? I don't know. God opened her eyes, maybe. I mean, when Peter makes his confession, thou art the Christ, the Son of God, what is it that, that Jesus says to him? He says, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but the Spirit, God himself, has revealed this to you. And so Jesus speaks this word, and she gets it right away. And look what she actually does. She inserts herself into the parable. Like, she understands it. She's the dog. She gets it. She understands her place here. 
And, and then when she speaks back, she actually inserts herself into it. And she says, okay, this is the bread of life given to the children of God. But even the dogs get to eat from the scraps of the children's table. Now, where this really comes to life is when you understand that this also comes right on the, on the heels of Jesus feeding the 5,000. And remember, he takes this little bit of bread, this little bit of fish, and he just spreads it, and it becomes in the hands of Jesus enough to feed thousands and thousands of people with tons left over. Remember that? Now, here's what's interesting. In her comment, or excuse me, in Jesus' comment to her when he says, let the children eat first, the word that he uses there, it means literally to eat to fullness. In other words, to eat until you are completely satisfied. And that word is only used in two other places in the entire Bible, the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000. So there's an intentional tie-in here, right? Here's the bread of life who is able and sufficient to feed everyone. And what she is saying You've got enough for me too. I understand your mission. I understand you came first to the children of God, but there is enough even in the scraps of your grace and your power to cover a dog like me. That's what she's saying. That is an incredible statement of faith. This woman gets it in a way no one else understands. No one else gets this. And we see this even in Jesus' reaction to her. He says to her, This statement, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter and she went home and found this child lying in the bed and the demon was gone. Matthew's account, he's just amazed by her faith. I mean, I want you to see what's going on here. I asked you earlier this idea about what is the gospel. This is the gospel. This is the gospel. Because understand what's going on here. This woman, she understands that the grace of Jesus is enough to cover not just the Jewish people, but everyone who comes to him. She gets it. She's aware of her need. It's really interesting too. I thought about doing a longer tie-in, another rabbit trail. I'll chase it just for a minute. Here, they're at Tyre and Sidon, which is just north of a city that we visited while we were in Israel called Caesarea. And Caesarea is the store, the place where the story takes place that is famous in the book of Acts, where you guys remember the, the story, Jesus, or excuse me, Peter has the vision of the sheep, and it's full of all the different animals. And Jesus says, or the vision says that, that what I have called unclean, let no, or what I've called clean, let no man call unclean. He understands this is actually God saying, now we're going to spread the gospel to the Gentiles as well. And he comes to this understanding and he comes to Cornelius. You guys know the whole story, right? You understand? Everybody shake with me so I'm not alone up here. Okay, so that happens in that same region, just right down the coastline from where they are. And even Peter wrestles with this whole understanding, like, God, is this really what you want me to do? Is this really, are we really opening this up to the Gentiles and everyone else? And he even seems to be resisting it. But here's this woman in that same region and it's the same sort of background, the same thing that the gospel is going into the Gentiles as well. And she's like, I'm in, I want it. It's an incredible story. But the reason this is such a great place for us to make sure we have an understanding of what is the gospel in its entirety is because of the elements that you see. Look on this screen right here. You have, a, you have an earth, we have an apple, we have a cross, and we have a crown. If I asked you, what is the gospel? What would you say? Most people will give kind of the canned Sunday school answer that Jesus died for our sins. If we believe in him, we get to go to heaven. Again, is that the gospel? Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's, that's part of it. Um, but you're not in third grade anymore. 
and you're not in VBS, and I think we can handle a little bit better understanding of what encompasses the gospel of Jesus Christ. And those four symbols alone can take you so far in understanding the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because consider what this lady is doing right here. She has zero claim to any sort of help from Jesus. She has as many or more strikes against her than anyone else in the book of Mark. And yet she is coming to him. And first of all, she knows it. She even refers to herself as a dog. She's fine with that. She's not offended. She identifies with that. And so she comes to him. She knows she's in need of his favor. She's begging him. And it seems even that she's sort of jostling with Jesus. Do you kind of get that vibe a little bit? Like Jesus makes this statement and then she's got, she comes back. She's quick. She's a sharp lady. And in that you can sort of see Well, can you think of anyone else that sort of wrestled in that way? Maybe a guy named Jacob, years and years and years earlier, who wrestled with God. And he said in the book of Genesis that he wrestled with God all night and then his hip was thrown out of socket and he was clinging to him. And it's the person of Jesus Christ that he's wrestling with. There in the book of Genesis. And he says, let go of me. What does he say? I will not let go of you until what? Until you bless me. And then what is the response of God to Jacob? From now on, your name will be? Israel, which means what? God strives. The idea here is here's this woman. She has no claim, no right whatsoever to ask of this or to expect that this will be granted. She is completely undeserving, but she knows who Jesus is. She trusts in his power. She humbles herself before him, aware of her sin, identified with it, humbles herself before him, trusts him that he is able and will will heal her. And from that moment on, he doesn't treat her like a dog. He treats her like a daughter. He says, go home. Your child is healed. This is a true Israelite. When the people of Israel were named after Israel, God strives because the whole message all along was supposed to be that I will fight for you. I will provide for you. I am the I am. What does that mean? I I am everything. I am your provision. I am your protection. I am everything. I am your salvation. I am your fortress. I am. That's what it means. Israel. God strives. God does the work. So now we have a true Israelite. Maybe not by nationality. Maybe not even by name. Because she's been saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ. So come, come back to the question again. What is the gospel? Look even at these, inch, the, these elements right here. The words I tend to use for this are creation, fall, repentance, redemption. Those are the four key words that if you, go, if you want to say, I want to be able to explain the gospel in its entirety, I want you to write those four words down. Creation, fall, repentance, redemption. You learn those four, you got the gospel down pat. This is the idea. If, you, if someone says, explain to me the gospel, and you just go, Jesus died for my sins. There's a lot of problems with that. I mean, it's great, it's true, but if someone doesn't know anything about it, they got problems, they got questions like, okay, so who is Jesus? What is sin? Why do I need him to do anything for my sin? I mean, there's a lot of holes in that story, right? So you go back to the very beginning. The gospel is that there is a God, the God, and that he created everything and everyone to be in perfect harmony with him. That is creation. He created us to be, in de- to be dependent on him 
That's the idea between Adam and Eve and the garden of good, or the uh, uh, tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It wasn't that God's holding out on them, but that they were designed to live in relation with God in that they would come to him when they needed anything. Understanding, provision, anything. They would come to God. They would have that sort of relationship like a child has with their father, with their mother. But then you go to fall. So we have the apple here. That's what creation was. Then sin enters into the picture. Man says, nope, I will eat of the tree of the, of, of the knowledge of good and evil. I will now be like God. I won't need to depend on him anymore. I will be my own God. I will understand things on my own. And man rebelled against God. And we have been in active rebellion ever since. All of us rebel against God. None of us have honored God, reflected God, glorified God, and lived in dependence on God like we were created to do. Sin has entered in the picture. And as a result, everything's broken. Everything's fractured. The reason babies die way too young is because everything's broken. The reason there are wars is because everything's broken. The harmony God created the earth to exist in has been completely fractured. I don't think we will ever understand until we get to eternity exactly how broken things are by sin. Exactly, I mean, just fractured. So creation, God has created us. Fall, everything is broken. And we now, more than just the fracture of creation, we now are at odds with God. We've rebelled against him. We, we are our own gods, right? But then there is the cross of Jesus Christ. You ever wonder, why is Jesus always telling these people, as soon as his fame starts to spread and he heals people, he goes, now don't tell anybody. You're going to see it in just a minute. Don't tell anybody. Well, because the reason is, is Jesus desires that he be known through the lens of the cross. And it hasn't taken place yet. He doesn't want people coming to him solely on the basis of uh, healing if you see any church service or any religious movement or, or denomination or anything that makes healing or prosperity or blessing or whatever the focus rather than the cross, you know right away they are totally off the foundation of what Christianity is supposed to be. Because the, the focus of it is not what we get from him, the focus of it is him. And so he desires that we know him, and the only way that we can know God is through the cross of Jesus Christ, because without it, we're at odds with him. We're his enemy. We can't know him any other way. And so there is creation, fall, repentance. We understand who we are. We understand our need. We understand that Jesus Christ is the one who has made possible the, our ability to even know God again. And so we have to turn from that which we've been leaning on all along, we're, gonna, we're getting out of one boat and we're getting in another, if that makes sense. And so the idea of repentance, it's I understand who I am. I understand how I've sinned against God. I'm sorry. I understand, I, I'm sorry for this and I'm going to turn and I'm going to follow him now. This won't be my God anymore. He is my God. That's the idea of repentance. And the only way that's possible is through the cross of Jesus Christ. And because of that, and we are healed, we're set free from sin. Isn't that great? So when I, I read that verse in Corinthians that such were some of you, but you have been washed, it is because Jesus Christ went to the cross in your place and the guilt and shame from all of our sin was placed on the shoulders of Jesus Christ. And in exchange, the righteousness of Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect sinless life 
is then placed on our shoulders. It's this great principle of substitution, atonement, where we have been now treated as if we lived Jesus's life because Jesus was treated as if we lived ours. And so we go from the dog, the one who has rebelled against God, who is worthless, vile, all those things, we go from them to the daughter, to the son of God. But in five minutes, I got to tell you, there's more. There's more to it than that. It's not just that we got saved and now we get to go to heaven. It's more than that. And to show you that, we're just going to read these last verses of the chapter, and I'm going to point this out to you. Take a look at it. Verse 31. So he returned from the region of Tyre, went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought him to a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears. And after spitting, touched his tongue. And looked up to heaven. Don't ask me to explain that. I have no idea. But um, after spitting, touched his tongue. And looked up into heaven. And he sighed and said to him, Ephaphtha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened. His tongue was released. And he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He makes even the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. Okay, now think about this. The last time Jesus went to the Decapolis region, does anybody remember where that was? It was another demon possession that was involved. It was the Gadarenes. That's the Decapolis, this legion of cities that had sworn allegiances to Greece. There's pagan idolatry, pagan practices going on, all this kind of stuff. The last time that Jesus came into that area that we saw in the book of Mark, remember he meets the demon-possessed man and he casts the spirit out of this demon-possessed man. And where did the spirits go? Into the pigs. And remember the swines all paraded off one by one into the ocean and they all died. Remember, what was the reaction of the people in the city when they saw what Jesus did and what happened? Anyone remember? Yeah, get out, <laughs> leave. They kicked Jesus out of here. But before Jesus left, what did he do? He comes to the demon-possessed man who's now in his right mind, and he told him, hey, you remember that guy wanted to come with Jesus. He wanted to get in the boat. He wanted to go with the guy who set him free. And Jesus said, no, 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 not yet. You, what did he tell him to do? Go tell your family. Go tell your friends what happened. It's one of the rare times so far in this book of Mark where he actually says, go tell. So Jesus gets evicted from a place that doesn't want him, but he sends a missionary and leaves him behind. Sound familiar like maybe our current situation, right? So Jesus may have been evicted from your school, but you got Christian kids, right? Go tell. But anyway, this is what he does. So the last time Jesus has been there, the reaction is get out. Now Jesus comes back. What's the reaction? Here's a crowd coming around him. They're pressing on him. They're wanting to hear what he says. And they're going to go on to say, he has done all things well. It would seem that our first Gentile missionary has been a success. I mean, suddenly now people want to hear from him. They want to hear what he's got. They're, they're here to see. They're here to, to go. Just remember that, guys. When Jesus gets expelled from our schools, when we feel like we're in areas where Jesus isn't wanted, he's left us to be the missionaries. And just trust him. It's not our job to change things. It's just our job to tell the story. But the gospel wins. The gospel wins in the end. So all these people have gathered around him. And, and he says to him this, that he goes to this guy that's deaf and, and, and speech impediment, not able to speak. And he does this weird thing where he spits and touches his tongue. And 
I don't think anyone can explain it, but that's what he does. And, um, and he looks up into heaven and he says, be opened. And his ears were opened and his tongue was released. Now, I want you to check this out. If, if you can get there fast enough, I want you to turn to Isaiah 35. If you, if you can't, that's okay. Um, but I, I want you to hear this. This is really, 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 really important. So hang with me. I promise I'll get you out of here in a second. Isaiah 35 has an immediate parallel that's really obvious. And then there's a parallel here in the story that's maybe not quite as obvious, but it's there. And I want you to understand this. Because in the book of Isaiah, up until chapter 35, it's been a whole section in the book of Isaiah of judgment. Sin, sin, sin. Judgment, judgment, judgment on all these people that are worshiping false idols and turning away from God. Just judgment, 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 judgment. Then Isaiah 35 comes along and the emphasis shifts and it starts talking about this Messiah and about what this Messiah is gonna do. And in the first six verses, it says this, the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. Those are all areas not far from where Jesus is right now, by the way. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. And then look at verse five. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, and the lame man shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. For the waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Here we suddenly have this passage where it's saying when the Messiah comes, when the kingdom is restored, everything's going to change. Now, the obvious parallel between these two stories is the fact that we have a man who has a speech impediment and he can't hear and Jesus restores that and he's healed. That's pretty obvious, right? So clearly he's identifying himself as the Messiah. Uh, We see all of that. Here's the not as obvious part that I want you guys to see. Back in the section in Mark, when all the people see this healing happen, what is it that they say? What's their response? They say, he does all things well. The word well there could also be translated good or perfect. Now, here's what's amazing. That same phrase sounds a lot like something that God the Father did and spoke about way back in the story of Genesis. When Genesis, in the story of Genesis, when God creates each day, it was morning, it was evening, he creates, and then what does it say? It was good. The parallel here is not by accident. What they're saying is the same way that God the Father did creation perfect and complete and good, the Son, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, in his recreation, in this redemption, is going to do them the same way. Perfect, complete, good. You see the parallel there? Here's why it's important. The gospel for us, if we're disciples of Jesus Christ, we're going to be followers of Jesus Christ, we want to do what Jesus does, we want to be on the mission of him. It's perfect that there's a kingdom logo there for the fourth one. Because the gospel doesn't just stop with the fact that we're saved and go to heaven. The understanding is this, sin broke everything, but Jesus is fixing everything. 
That there's a kingdom coming in which there won't be fractured relationships anymore. There won't be dangerous animals and death and babies dying young anymore. There won't be broken creation. All the harmony that was intended to be part of the shalom, the Old Testament says, of God's creation will be restored through the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. And the reason that's important is because for us, our role here, and we've covered this before, but it bears repeating, we are part of what you might call a kingdom outpost. And so when Jesus teaches about the kingdom of God in Matthew 5, uh, when the New Testament principles that talk about the fact that the church operates with harmony and we, we forgive one another and we love one another, we help one another in their times of need and all these things, it's, it's way more than just because that's what Jesus did and we want to be just like him. It's because we are picturing to the world around us something that's still to come. That there is a king coming who is going to make things right. The kind of disharmony when you guys meet people out there who have broken families, children with no parents, parents with dead children, marriages that have ended, those sorts of things, that they would come in and then they find something called the family of God that suddenly has, uh, they look out for one another and they serve one another and they love one another and they care for one another and they pray for one another in a way that they feel like they've never had or that they have lost. That's the idea. And it even goes into just even simple things like service projects to make our community nicer and better. Does God really care that we mow our neighbor's yard? Well, yeah, because things like pulling weeds, weeds won't be there in the future. And even the fact that we are bringing order to chaos speaks of the fact that Jesus, when he comes back and when the kingdom is officially restored and is here for good, that stuff's gone. And we're back to the paradise. The the whole story of the Bible is the recreation of all the things that are broken. Eden lost, paradise lost, is paradise regained in the end. And let me, I'm begging you, don't leave that out of the gospel. That's great stuff. The gospel of Jesus Christ is this, that God created us to look like him, to glorify him, and in the image of God. But we sinned against him and we rebelled against him. And when we did that, all relationships were broken. Relationships between us and nature. We saw a rattlesnake on a hike at family camp just this week. Couldn't touch it. Why? Because the earth is broken. That would be a bad move. He didn't even have legs now because of the fall. Right? Some of you are with me on that. It's true, right? (laughs) Okay, that's biblical. Not just being silly. So so things are broken. They're falling. Not the least of which is my relationship with God. I am a massive distance from God because of my sin and rebellion. But God was aware of this and he injected himself into history in the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus lived perfectly in the way that we can't do. But then died for our sins. And for those that would repent, turn from their sin and follow him, which means what? Become a disciple. Those who will repent from those things and put their trust in him. You can heal me. You came to the Jews, but your grace is big enough for everyone. Your grace, you can heal me. And you put your faith in him, his righteousness, his saving work. Then God has not only saved you and adopted you, if you will, into the family of God. But now we have the opportunity of living for a kingdom that is yet to come in which there will be no more broken relationships. There will be no more weeds. Can I get an amen for that? There will be no more leaves falling in the fall. There will be no fall. It'll just be summer all the time. But like good summer, not forest fire summer. You know what I'm talking about? All the t- I'm serious though, all the time. 
That whole death cycle right there is speaking something of what's going on. Isn't it interesting how in our earth things just fall? Why do we always want to go to Hawaii? It's perfect. You know what I mean? There's, there's things that God has written into the spirit of men that speak the gospel all the time and tell us things are broken and that there's this king that's coming to put it all back together. And so don't leave that part out of your gospel. Say that, look, Jesus is coming and he's fixing all that. People go, where was God? You say, he's coming. He's coming. And he's going to fix that. And you should probably be on his team. So we need to spread the gospel. But here's what I will say. I think it's funny. Jesus says to these guys, this time, okay, don't tell anybody. And it says, the more he told them that, the more they spread the word. So I'm going to try a new approach. Guys, listen, don't tell anyone the gospel, all right? Tell no one nothing of the gospel. Don't tell them about Jesus. Don't tell them anything. And maybe your response will be the same as the people in that area. Amen?